evil things to me. They're wicked to me. Including Sid? Oh, he's the worst. He laughs at me secretly. (laughs) (laughs) And belches quite a lot as well. (laughs) That was the sound of Sid Vicious belching on the 11th of November 1977 just around the corner from Broadcasting House here in London. We'll be talking about the Sex Pistols a little later. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name's Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here with my esteemed colleague, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello. First, though, we are going to start by talking about Chic, kind of in the same period as the Sex Pistols, but sort of almost like the opposite, the (laughs) anti-sex pistols. Um, So both of these great late 70s acts are featured on the homepage of Rock's Back Pages this coming week. Uh, We have three free features on Chic from that period. Well, two from that period. One by the great Danny Baker, who was a huge Chic fan and turned me on to Chic, probably one of the writers that really turned me on to Chic. Uh, I'll never forget his single of the week review of Good Times Mm -hmm. in the NME. So Chic have a big box set coming out next week. Uh, I think it's called the Chic Organization. So it's a lot of Chic stuff, but it's also stuff that Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards (laughs) produced other artists like the great Norma Jean Wright's uh, song Saturday, a great disco classic from uh, 1978. Um, I know I can speak for Mark when uh, when I say we both think Chic were just uh, absolute gods of the dance floor. A- absolutely fabulous. I mean, for me, the sad irony is I saw the Pistols back in the day and I didn't see Chic. And actually, personally, I wish it had been the other way around. <laughs> it was the other round for me. I didn't see the pistols, and I did see Sheik. Yeah, I saw. I'm so envious. Well, I like that. I, I do like to be envied by you, Mark. <laughs> uh, I, I saw the now legendary Hammersmith Odeon show in the autumn of 1979. Yeah. It was absolutely stunning. I'd probably say it was the greatest live show I ever saw. And, you know, this was um, a live show by a disco group. Yeah. And disco groups weren't really supposed to be great live acts. Um, well, they weren't, weren't supposed to be groups. They, I mean, weren't really, they weren't real groups. Disco was a producer's medium primarily. Um, I mean, I personally loved disco. Did I love disco at the time? I loved Chic at the time. Because they had a, being a band, they had some sort of presence which, in a way... What appeared to be faceless disco artists didn't have. I've revised my opinion entirely on that, by the way. But um, certainly, you're a complete disco horn. I'm aren't a complete you? disco horn now. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But she were <laughs> they sort of were disco, but they transcended disco, yeah. didn't they? And, and I think that was because they wrote extraordinary songs yeah. with incredible melody, melodies and grooves. And I mean, in Nile Rodgers and Bernard Edwards, two of the greatest players of any instruments in any musical media. Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, uh, Bernard's bass playing is still just nails me to the floor. It's really something. And also, just to mention one other guy, the piano player, players plural. I just love the way that those chic songs are built on these big architectural piano chords. And that never gets talked about. And I, I, I think it's a really big part of what makes well, I think so that's a brilliant fabulous. point because it gave Nile and Nard a platform. Yeah, and really, and I mean, space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, to call them pads would be no, would be certainly to, not to minimise. They were far more than pads. Yeah. These beautiful gliding yeah. kind of 
piano chords mm. and and these incredible grooves that were were built on top of them, yeah. built on top of Tony Thompson's. Or sometimes bizarre drumming. I mean, it's it's brilliant close. choices he makes. And also sometimes close to John Bonham than any sort of conventional funk drummer. I mean, he, he had a sort of a weighty smack to what he did. But anyway, we are both chic freaks, and uh, there's some, they're fabulous articles. Danny Baker one. And Danny Baker, at a time when white rock papers did not write about that sort of black music, he was flying the flag for it all, all along. He really was, Danny was. And, and, I mean, there weren't many writers writing about disco on NME. Um, And so for me, the way Danny wrote about disco and some other writers, of course, David Sigerson, who we have, um, even Richard Williams was writing uh, brilliantly about disco in that period. Richard, of course, got disco. Um, You know, Danny and others made me take that, that style mm-hmm. very seriously. Yeah. I mean, yeah. of course, it's not meant to be taken seriously. It's meant to be about fun and frivolity and dancing. and ecstasy and hedonism and dancing, of course, exactly. But, you know, she, you can listen to, irrespective of whether you're anywhere near a dance yeah, floor, I think, you know. Um, so um, um, we also have a, a retrospective piece by Daryl Easley, who wrote the book on Chic, um, the splendidly named Everybody Dance, Chic and the Politics of Disco. Uh, we love Daryl. Um, Daryl was last seen at the Louder Than Words Festival last weekend, <laughs> uh, I think chairing a panel about glam versus prog, and uh, Daryl arrived with an enormous Rick Wakeman-style cape, which he wore for the entire panel. I mean, we love Daryl, one, one of the one of just the loveliest and funniest um, writers we have on our books. So that's chic for you. Um, also free on RBP this week um, are the words of David Hepworth, um, who came on board the Good Ship Rocks Back pages, I suppose, about a year ago. Um, that long ago? I he held out for that long. Right. We, we were trying, trying to get his signature for many years, mm-hmm. and uh, I knew Dave back in the, in the EMAP days when I worked on Mojo. Um, Dave has um, reinvented himself as an author of some, of some repute and, and some considerable sales. He's a real bestseller. There's a kind of Dave Hepworth brand now, um, starting with his... Um, his book about 1971 mm-hmm. and then Uncommon People and he has a new book out called Nothing Is Real um, which is uh, I, I, it's, it's, the subtitle is something about how the Beatles were underrated and other sweeping statements about pop <laughs> uh, and uh, Dave's a very amusing guy um, uh, he was obviously part of that great double act with, with Mark Ellen um, and we've got some. We've got two pieces from Smash Hits, actually, yeah. um, because that's where they started yeah. together. I mean, D- David Hepworth was one of the kind of founder writers for Smash Hits. Now, Smash Hits, Barney and I were both massive readers of the music press at the time. Sort of, Smash Hits came out of left field for us because it was a nakedly pop paper aimed essentially at a teenage pop buying market. It printed lyrics and all that sort of stuff, but it. First of all, it was edited by Nick Logan, the great enemy editor. Um, and he had obviously spotted a hole in the market where pop music could be written about knowingly and well 
but in the context of teenage paper. And he hired people like Neil Tennant and all kinds of fabulous writers. Uh, and, and I don't, did I read Smash It at the time? No, I was an NME guy. But now in my job as the archivist here, I read it all the time. What a fabulous paper it was, certainly in the very end of the 70s through to the, the mid-80s. It was an absolutely tremendous magazine. Very well put, Mark. I mean, it really was the, the Bible of pop. It was kind of the anti-enemy. And as you say, Logan, who's a very canny publisher, saw this gap in the mm. market, saw that teenage pop fans were were essentially being neglected. Yeah. Um, it, it clearly hit almost instantly because it started off as a monthly. And within, I think, about three months, it had gone bi-weekly. Um, they wouldn't have done that if if the thing wasn't selling in large quantities. It was very brash to look at, very colourful, printed lyrics, lots of photographs. No huge, long, meaty pieces. We're talking about thousand-word sort of top whack. But it's... it's, it reads brilliant. Old issues now read brilliantly. Yes. Just great. I mean, I can remember when I worked on the NME in the early 80s, uh, the Smash It's office was across the street on Carnaby yep. Street, and we sort of looked down on them while... <laughs> literally. <laughs> literally. Literally, while also feeling somewhat threatened yep. by them, you know, yep. because we understood that this was a kind of new pop generation yep. coming through that didn't take music as seriously as we were yep. all still taking I, I think they influenced the enemy curiously and that people like Paul Morley started writing about nakedly pop acts fairly shortly afterwards suddenly you get Paul Morley doing a 3,000 word or a dollar for God's sake that's a very good point you know and I think that was to some extent a response and 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 um Hepworth and Allen, of course, then went on to found Q magazine, which was a more direct threat to the enemy mm-hmm. ethos and aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I had mixed feelings about what Q stood for, but I yeah. really understood that, again, they had spotted a gap a gap in the market, which were, I suppose, sort of, you know, what Hepworth later went on to coin uh, the term 50 quid blokes. Yeah. And so the, this sort of nascent... Uh, General or boomer generation of 50 quid blokes who couldn't really understand the enemy anymore. Sure. Um, and for whom Q was a very handy way of being um, um, educated as to what was yeah. really happening yeah. in pop culture. Uh, Q also had a fairly retro aspect to it, which pointed directly to the following on Mojo magazine, for example. I mean, with no Q, I don't think you'd have got Mojo. I think it proves there was a hunger for people, as you say, 50 quid bloke who could buy a bunch of CDs to read about the stuff that it, he, had, and it usually was a he, had grown up with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a there's a lovely piece about Ian Jury um, by David from Smash Hits. Also, Madness, a cover story on Madness, um, both from 1979, so pre-Q, pre, obviously way pre-Mojo. Um, and then um, bring it more up to date... There's a review from The Word, which he was also involved in, yep. with Mark Ellen yep. and Paul Denoyer again, from 2003, which is um, it, it's essentially a piece about the CD, the very belated CD release of Neil Young's On the Beach, um, which is a sort of timely thing, given yep. um, that Neil's house burned down in, in Zuma Beach yes. or Malibu Beach, um, leading to Neil um, issue, issuing some very stern words about about Trump's comments on forest management. <laughs> um, on the Beach, one of my favourite albums. Yeah. Um, I think 
possibly yeah, no, one of your uh, favourite? That, that's my favourite Neil Young period, the sort of on the beach Zuma. Uh, tonight's the night stretch. It's yes. about three or four albums in a row, which are, the Doom I, trilogy as that, it's been is, is that done. right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the Doom trilogy uh, on the beach um, actually came out in seventy four mm-hmm. before tonight's the night, but ah. actually was recorded after. Right, it. that's the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then there's Time Fades Away, which did finally come out on CD. I mean, these are incredible. I mean, to me, they're my favourite Neil Young records. I think on the beach, tonight's the night. Uh, time fades away, Zuma. Um, I really, really love all those records. They're mm-hmm. the sort of darkest records Neil ever made. Anyway, Hepworth's very good on them, and there's tons more Hepworth on Rock's Back Pages. His new book is, as I say, is called uh, Nothing Is Real, um, which of course comes from Strawberry Fields Forever. Yes, you're right. Am I right? Am yes. I right? Okay. Yes. Um, good. So um, we'll move on from Sheik and David Hepworth to the. Notorious but but lovable Sex Pistols. Yes. Um, we really have a, a, an absolute kind of um, bit of a goldmine for you this week in in this um, almost hour long audio interview with Johnny Rotten as he then was and Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols, recorded for Radio One um, in November 1977 uh, at, at by John Tobler, who you know many of us know. Best from Zigzag. That's magazine. right. Yeah, yeah. And it is just—I have to just say—it is probably the funniest audio interview on Rock's yeah. Back Pages. Well, the one thing about this audio is that basically they're rude about everyone. One person after another, they're rude about you name it, including each other. Um, this first clip is uh, them being particularly rude about their manager, Malcolm McLaren. And actually, the thing is that Sid, Sid Vicious plays the fool, but he's laceratingly accurate in this. A question that, that's occurred to me is that um, Malcolm, who uh, I know you hold in great esteem. <laughs> oh, that, I, I hate Malcolm. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read that <laughs> once or twice. Um, he was he was originally a Stones fan. Typical. He he was a miserable little artist from the East End, with with pretensions of being middle class. He's in in his house, in his closet in Clapham. He's he's got this really ridiculous picture of a of a this awful load of scribble and it's meant to be a chair. It's meant to be a chair. And he's going. Uh, well, you'll see. Every it's, time you it's go meant in, to signify anyway. the flow of air around the show now. <laughs> and trying to be all artistic and impress us, and we were laughing our heads off. Thinking, what an idiot! <laughs> it was great. And there's that poxy Vivian squawking away in the corner, sewing things up, <laughs> babbling away to herself. The old bag. I hate her as well. Well, why, why do in that case? Why do you put up? Because we like them. <laughs> <laughs> They're our friends. <laughs> I see. No, it occurred Where to me. Where would we be without Malky Walky? I, 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 I can't say. <laughs> I'd be the new Beatles. <laughs> so that was Sid dissing Malcolm McLaren. <laughs> Um, if you're a subscriber, if you would like to subscribe to RBP, there is um, so much more where that came there from. Is. It's so funny. I was listening to the, in the gym last night and I was laughing out loud rather embarrassingly. I was literally wetting myself because it is so funny. Um, this, no, no, this no, that wouldn't happen with me because the chances of me... Last time I was in the gym was probably like in the fourth year at school. So Dad's called an ambulance, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, but uh, anyway, it's great. Uh, and we'll be playing another couple of snatches later on. But We really will. So, you know, uh, Pistols, um, what can we say about the Sex Pistols? Uh, I mean, in the interview, they're incredibly rude about Glenn Matlock. I saw, I think, their third ever show when they played Chelsea School of Art in November 75. At, w- at which you were a student. At which I was a student. And a f- couple of things. First of all... It- I remember the gig like it was yesterday, and there's a lot of gigs I've completely forgotten. Did I think they were much good? No, I didn't. I thought, the bass player's good, and of course that's Glenn Who <laughs> <laughs> they're fantastically rude about. <laughs> they're fantastically rude. Um, uh, also, there's this, the wild head guy behind the mixing, by the mixing desk was Malcolm McLaren. I found him weirdly transfixing. The place was half empty. Um, Viv Albertine was there, and she went on to form a slips, and I uh, didn't do a great deal. Um... And Rotten was shouting on the stage, you're all too old, you're all too old. And I'm thinking, actually thinking at the time, he's right. Um, of course, the irony is he's exactly one day older than me. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. There's a nice where, a bit where Tobler asks them, uh, or I think asks Sid specifically, what bands he actually likes, yeah. given that he appears to dislike almost everyone. And he says, oh, I like my slips, which... <laughs> I found very endearing. Um, and, and the Ramones. Sid is so funny in this. He I is. mean, you know, he sort of plays the doofus. But it, it, it's so funny, it's like a couple of brilliant comedians doing yes. Vicious and Rotten. You almost can't believe it's real. Um, but um, The other thing is that Sid's accent sort of slips because he's a lot more middle class than he made out. Um, he says, so he talks about a talk like that. And every now and again, he kind of goes into sort of grammar school speech. And it's kind of quite endearing. I love it when he's talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre. But he clearly read him. That's the thing you get from that. I didn't necessarily oh, glean that. No, no I did, because he says something beyond that, which is an absolute direct reference. So at some, probably at school. He had read Sartre. And talking of Sid Vicious's <laughs> school days, of course, um, our colleague and partner, Martin Collier, one of the original co-founders of Rock's Back Pages, was at school with... Was John Beverly? Yeah, John Beverly. John Beverly. Um, and and Sid then Vicious. years later, he bumped into a tube train when Sid had become Sid, and apparently Sid looked at him, and he, Martin looked at Sid, and they sort of didn't acknowledge each other, but clearly there was recognition. <laughs> and talking of Sid, he says, doesn't he, in the interview, I always hated the name Sid, so they started calling me Sid. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such sort of cruelty and malevolence there beneath the humour. But um, it's, it's great. just fantastic. Yeah. I was so thrilled. And the other thing to say is that Tobler handles the thing brilliantly. Um, Sid is demanding cigarettes and cups of tea and belching. And, uh, and, and Tobler, you know, where a lot of people would have done a Bill Grundy. <laughs> yes. Um, Tobler really, really handles the he whole does, thing He does, doesn't well. he? He does. And, and, and they don't, for one minute, you, you expect them to attack Tobler at some point. I they mean, don't. they must have known about Zigzag. Oh, yeah. And so Tobler would have sort of embodied that well, kind of Zigzag, West Coast thing. Zigzag's probably where Johnny Rotten used to learn about Van de Graaff Generator from. He was probably a regular Zigzag yeah. reader. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And Sid also just does, he almost does a kind of uh, with nail, doesn't he, when he's sort of going, bring me a cigarette. I <laughs> demand a cigarette. It's just brilliant. So there we go. We, we must stop talking about the yes. Sex Pistols, um, although we can't get enough of them. So no. we're now going to look at what 
is going into the Roxbury Pages library this week. And so, Mark, take it away. Yeah, uh, uh, a few highlights. Um, again, it's Dawn James, this time writing under her pseudonym Jean-Marie. Uh, she wrote under about four different names for Rave because Rave had about two writers and they um, would do different names. Uh, she interviews Sandy Shaw and it's, it's really charming because... Um, Sandy Shaw, she, she says, because I'm 17, I'm told to take advice and do as people bid. I think, what's so different about being 17 that I can't decide for myself? If I let people sway me now, I'll be letting them when I'm 18, 21, 30. Shouldn't I be myself now and always? And I, 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 I love that quote because, you know, she is clearly surrounded by people telling her what to do. And, you know, she's a tough young woman who's got a very clear sense of herself. Absolutely. Uh, again, this is Dawn James, great writer, um, who we'll hopefully feature further on this podcast. We got a Geoffrey Cannon unpublished interview with Nico from 1970, uh, which is kind of a, a curious one. Basically, the questions are always four times longer than the answers. Um, that Nico sounds pretty depressed. Um, and she says, I suffer from ob- oblivion. That is part of my being able to survive. Because if I were obsessed by all the things that I can remember, I'd just go insane. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting one. And that leads naturally on to the next one I picked out, which is Nick Kent's interview with Lou Reed from 72. Lou Reed in 72 was in a pretty interesting position. The Velvets had broken up a year before. He'd done one solo album to no great sort of impact but had just been seized upon by David Bowie in the Ziggy Stardust period of Bowie. And uh, I think, did Lou support Bowie at some shows? I think, but he was certainly... They played together at the Festival Hall. That's right. Um, And he was also recording what became Transformer. He said, my first solo album was all love songs. This is all hate songs. It's going to be called Transformer. And, you know, uh, Nick Kent is... uh, Probably, probably, I suspect it's his first introduction to read the difficult interviewee. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And Nick had just started on The Enemy, really, at that time, I think. It was very early, yeah. So for him, you know, Lou Reed and Iggy Pop were already iconic figures and precursors of, of punk. And I think he makes that point in the piece, doesn't yes. he? Yeah. That, that, Lou, that Lou is so influential, has clearly been so influential on yeah. David Bowie. Um, yeah. And, of course, we should mention Mick Ronson here because um, I think when I interviewed Lou Reed in the 90s, he made the point that Mick had ultimately and musically more to do with Transformer than Bowie yeah. did. Bowie would, prob- would just sort of wander in yeah. occasionally. But really, Ronson was the kind of musical arranger on that. Absolutely. Record. In fact, Lou, in this interview, sings Ronson's praises as a guitar player, but also he very much makes it clear that Ronson is as involved as Bowie is in the production of the album, as you say, actually more, more so. So, yeah, that, 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 that's a very good point. Lovely. Uh, 1980 in the NME, Enemy Guide to Electronic Music by Andy Gill. Now, uh, 1980, you know, since it's been around, since the dawn of prog, probably about you know, five, eight years before, but 1980 was really the first time that cheap analogue synths becoming available and that English musicians in particular were seizing on them to, beco- to produce what became electropop about around that time and about a year or so, so later. And it's the first part of a fairly extensive guide. And he says, sooner or later, we'll all come to terms with the fact that despite its inferior posing quotient, the synthesizer may eventually challenge and supplant the guitar as the most common instrument in pop music. It's an ultra-soporific mixture. There are, uh, sorry, and then another quote. 
uh, about Tangerine Dream. It's an ultra-soporific mixture, and there remains some doubt as to whether anyone actually consciously heard the closing minutes of Tangerine Dream or Edgar Froese's album. Uh, it's, a, it's a very good piece. It covers everything from sort of the German uh, avant-garde through to Krautrock and so on and so forth. And Eno. Uh, and Eno, and minimalism yeah. and so on and so yeah. forth. Uh, so for 1980, it's, it's a remarkably prescient and well-written piece about it, um, electronic music. Excellent. And a delightful interview, the always delightful Luther Vandross by Geoffrey Himes from the Baltimore Sun in 1982. And there's three great quotes here. My idea of a great record is that you focus in on the record player so totally that if somebody taps you lightly on the shoulder, they'll give you a heart attack. In other words, someone should be able to rob your house while you're listening to a ballad without you knowing it. And the last one is about his family. My mum used to know how to handle us. If my brother was bad, it was no basketball. If I was bad, it was no Shirelles. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, it's, we, we, you've interviewed him. He, I he, did he, interview Luther Vandross, and, and it was a great privilege to meet him. I was a huge fan. Yeah, and those quotes too. really sum up uh, what music meant to him. Yeah. You know, there were an awful lot of R&B singers in that era who you felt were more concerned with their kind of look, mm-hmm. their looks and their clothes and mm-hmm. their success with women or whatever it might be. Luther really cared enormously about the craft of his music, yes. of his songs and the production. He had these incredible musicians around him like Marcus Miller and he immediately stood out for me among mm-hmm. those kind of you know R&B love men of, it, it, of, the, of the sort of late of the, well early early 80s early really and which wasn't a great period for R&B drum machines were very much coming in the whole sound of R&B becoming very flattened out in certain ways and even though he had some of those production values. The care and attention he put, both not into, just into his singing, but the whole sort of process. And, of course, he went on to produce some pretty serious records for other mm. people, Jumped to It by Aretha Franklin and others. Um, and for me, if I've got a top ten single records in, uh, uh, of all mm. time, I'd say his version of Backrack and David's A House Is Not A Home is bang in that top ten. It's just one of the most beautiful records ever made. It's wholly immersive yeah. piece of music, isn't it? And, and you're absolutely right, you could listen to that and someone taps you on the shoulder and you probably would have a heart yeah. attack. I mean, yeah. I think he was extraordinary. I really do think he was close to genius, Luther. Yeah. Um, I we mean, of course, him. tying in with Bowie, who we were speaking about earlier, he, he was the guy who came up with the vocal lick on Young Americans. He was a big part yeah. of Bowie's tour the young americans tour yeah. and all of that so um i just think uh vandross's records really really they sound stand better up i think they sound very better well. now than they did i mean the any love album that's great um, i think is a masterpiece yeah, actually yeah. um both the up tempo and the ballad yeah. stuff he's incredible and, and lastly from my set of choices uh, last week we talked about marion faithful the time when she was deep into her addictions and so on and so forth and this week we're running a live review from 1995 in The Guardian by the wonderful Caroline Sullivan. Uh, and uh, we talked last week about how Marianne became this wonderful sort of diva, of ageing diva of rock. And Caroline writes, actress to the last, she was playing a character. She sang torturally, pulling out most of the stops and was brilliant. Dragging her low register along the ancient blues ballad, Trouble in Mind, she was an archetype hitherto neglected by English pop the upper-class woman of a certain age. <laughs> Fabulous. Fabulous. Um, so that's, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's a really nice, very sympathetic um, live review. 
I, I have interviewed Marianne a couple of times and, you know, she, she is always good value. Uh, we did talk about her last week, so we probably don't need to say much more about nope. her. Um, have you got any other treats in no, that, store? No, that, that's, that's my lot. That I, is... Uh, you- I mean, well, there's a couple of things worth mentioning. There's a, a live review from 77 of Gene Clark at the Whiskey. Gene Clark's just such a fascinating character. Um, and... Uh, uh, I love Gene you, Clark, you do, I have to say. Rather um, than me, it has to be said. It, 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 it is a slightly uh, depressing and sad review um, of of, uh, of what clearly was, you know, Gene kind of running out of steam. Yeah. Um, but to me, he's the most beguiling and enigmatic of all the birds. I think his earlier songs on the early Columbia albums are the greatest things on them. To right. me, yeah. even, I mean, just because they have this sort of haunting folk poetic quality about them. So things like um, uh, Set You Free This Time, they're so different from what McGuinn or, or Crosby I mean, or anyone else would Certainly do. version one of the birds was never the same again after he left. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, people focus more on Crosby's departure and so on and so forth. Yeah. But in terms of the sound that band made and the songs that they played... Um, uh, th- th- there's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, fantastic. And, and um, you know, I mean, of course, uh, his album No Other is one of the great cult mm-hmm. records to come out of LA in the in the seventies, and I, I think it's an extraordinary sort of is, mystic masterpiece. Is the documentary on Netflix? There's a fairly major documentary on one of the catch-up services. I haven't seen it on Netflix, Um, uh, and I haven't seen it, and I would love to see uh, it. Well, if if any of you Mm. um, can find it, it's it's well worth watching. Do phone in. Do phone in. Um, <laughs> so um, I haven't much to add other than say that in the last, there's some of the pieces that have gone in from the last sort of 15, 20 years, there's another timely Neil Young involved piece uh, by Tim Cooper from the Independent 2005, I think it is. Um, no, sorry, 2008. And it's essentially it's an interview with Neil about his Living With War album, but also about the tour that he'd done with Crosby, Stills and Nash, the Deja Vu tour and a DVD had come out of that. And there's just an interesting bit, you know, given the times we're living in here, um, I'm just going to read this bit. In the most memorable scene, writes Cooper, hundreds of audience members walk out of a show in Atlanta in protest at the quartet, encouraging them to sing along to Young's song, Let's Impeach the President. Um, And he goes on, seemingly oblivious to the almost comical irony of leaving a freedom of speech concert in protest at the singers expressing their own freedom to speak out. They air air their fury on camera as they leave. Neil Young can stick it up his ass, fumes a female fan. Son of a bitch, I'd like to knock his teeth out, a red-faced man declares. Young seems unconcerned. Well, they were speaking out too. He chuckles behind his shades. They were just saying, fuck you. I don't want to have anything to do with this guy crossing my line. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. That's America's um, day, Plus ça change, plus le même chose, yeah. right? Um, Neil sounding off about Trump last week. Um, scary times we're in. Uh, is music really confronting those 
times and, and, and the fears that we're all gripped by now. Uh, what can music do? Uh, it, 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 does music have any kind of political teeth anymore? Um, I don't think so. I, 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 I think that on a local level it can. I think grime and its various successes in London is very specific... Um, you know, London-centric discussion about the lives of young black people in this city. But music's too diffuse, there's too much of it. It's too spread, it's too thin, it's too packaged. And I just don't think that... Let's, let's be honest, that music did have, never had much political resonance. We look back on Dylan as some sort of, you know, acme of that. But, you know... Music was always the accompaniment to other movements and wider ideas. Um, the, the, the rebellions, inverted commas, of the 60s would have happened anyway. It just so happened that it happened at a time when music was particularly important to young people. Um, but I don't think we can do, delude ourselves that music has the power to change minds. I think in some ways, you know, we're all still haunted, even those of us who didn't live through that period, by the fact that Music didn't change the world. Yeah. The, the radical politics of rock culture in the mid to late 60s didn't actually do what they said mm-hmm. they were going to do. And, uh, and, I, and I think there's a sort of sense of, of grief and loss yeah. there that, that's well, permanent in, uh, the, in the culture. I, I'd, I'd, I'd actually almost turn it around. I'd say that, that, that uh, the very people who were the keenest on the music actually proved to be the most neoliberal and reactionary of a lot in many respects. So you look at Silicon Valley, it's full of the, mm. the fragments of... The, I mean, Steve Jobs is a classic example. Mm. Of the, the fragments of the hippie protest generation. And it all became about me, 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 and mm. about, you know, my rights. It wasn't about our rights. It was never about collective action. It was always about what's, what's good for me. Mm. And it's dressed up in an elaborate language of liberation and freedom. But actually, when it boils down to it, it's about them stealing all our data and screwing us over. So, Well, and talking of radical musical politics, why don't we bow out with uh, some more words from uh, the guys behind Anarchy in the UK. Another clip um, of vicious messes, vicious and rotten, talking to John Tobler in November 1977. The title of, of the album you did put out, did you, whose decision was it to call it? Never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Ours. Steve always says that, it's his catchphrase. It was something that Steve always used to say. Because he's rude. And decadent. Uncouth. And fat. (laughs) Very fat. Oh, but he's not here to defend himself. He couldn't defend himself even if he was the ignorant slob. (laughs) We hate him. (laughs) We plot against him every night. And they plot against me as well. Why do they plot against you, Sid? Because they say that I'm a shit bass player, and that I can't play nothing, and that I'm stupid. That isn't a plot, that's just a fact, my <laughs> life. <laughs> no, that's what Don't get above your station, piece of low life. That was an excerpt from Sid Vicious and Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols chatting to John Tobler, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The presenters were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison-Bowie. You can find all the articles they talked about, and thousands more, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 